This is Lisa Miller and Associates, Florida Insurance Roundup, your podcast on the people, issues, and regulations shaping Florida's insurance market. Now, here's Lisa Miller. Welcome, friends. Early indications are that Assignment of Benefits, or AOB, reform passed by the legislature in 2019 is starting to work. Many of our listeners have heard us talk about this topic for many years, and we wanted to kind of give you a new perspective. Citizens Property Insurance Corporation, the state's insurer of last resort, reports the number of its AOB-related claims is down from over 500 in June of 2019 to only 148 in December of last year. However, all is not rosy. While private carriers are beginning to see similar relief, they also report new strategies and ideas by contractors and their attorneys to work around the reforms. On the other side, contractors complain that without the old AOB, they're getting gypped by insurance companies and homeowners for work they've already performed. So what are we going to do? I think this podcast will be very interesting to many of you because we're going to do a brainstorming session on this one by experts who've been out in the field dealing with these property insurance claims, both before and after AOB reform. There are still some claims problems on both sides, and today's program is not a silver bullet, but rather we wanted to get everyone thinking about ideas and solutions. That includes insurance company claims handlers, defense and plaintiff attorneys, contractors, public adjusters, maybe even our regulators and lawmakers that listen to these podcasts. Joining us from Miami is Tanaz Salehi, a defense attorney for insurance companies fighting claims abuse and who also advises contractors in ways they can draft their contracts in light of the AOB reform. She's a partner with the Salehi Boyer Levine Labanya Law Firm in Miami. She's also an IICRC Certified Water Damage Technician to boot. IICRC is the standard-setting body for proper protocol dealing with water claims and damage. And we have Mohammed Sharif, partner with Mubarak and Sharif, a Tampa law firm that focuses predominantly on helping homeowners in the Florida Panhandle with Hurricane Michael claims. He's a past insurance defense counsel, I've worked with him for years, and began his legal career with the Florida Office of Insurance Regulation. Welcome to Naz and Mohammed. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Lisa. So, Tanaz, let's start with you. You and I have talked on and off about the purpose of an AOB contract, and that is to have a legal agreement between the contractor and the homeowner which allows a contractor to receive payments directly from the insurance companies for work that they do at a policyholder's home. And there should be no reason for the homeowner in that arrangement to pay any money up front. Okay, sounds great. But as you and I know, for the past seven years, unscrupulous vendors and their lawyers have taken advantage of the theory and concept behind an AOB. And they took, in many cases, a homeowner's policy, and then they would inflate the scope and cost of the work and then in turn sue the insurance company. And you've heard this story over and over again. So after six or seven years of that, the legislature passed AOB reform last year, and now we have much tighter rules that stem this abuse. So in the last seven months, you being on the front lines, what are you seeing in the aftermath of the AOB reforms? 
So that's actually a very good uh, description and explanation of what the AOB is. And uh, I think I've mentioned this to you before, but the assignment of benefits was initially created to be this uh, beautiful idea where it built a bridge between two separate parties that did not have a privity of contract or a relationship so that they can deal with each other directly as if there was one. And uh, the way I think about the assignment initially uh, when it first came out is, and transformed over time with different cases, is the vendor essentially becomes the hologram of the insured. They step into the shoes and become a lifelike version of the insured in all respects. They can challenge all sorts of things, the denial, the underpayment. Um, and what started out to be a useful tool, which was a bridge, has changed over time. And from what I understand, there was a 3,000% increase in the number of lawsuits between 2008 to 2015, uh, accounting for nearly one-third of the lawsuits filed in uh, the state of Florida. So in the last uh, seven months since the AOB legislation, what have we seen? Specifically, it's um, some of it is uh, strategic, some of it is legal, and uh, of course, some of it is also uh, contract drafting. So... What I have seen is a lot of the carriers are filing motions to strike the attorney's fees by these AOB vendors under 627-428, which is the statutory fee uh, that plaintiff's attorneys are using or they have used against uh, first-party insurance carriers. So, uh, And they've been prevailing, the insurance companies have been prevailing on this issue, making a very uh, cogent and consistent argument that's been working in different counties, particularly in Polk and Palm Beach. I've seen orders out of the those counties granting defendants motion to strike the vendor or the AOB's fees under that particular statute. And um, I don't know if you want me to get into the gist of that uh, particular argument because I'd love to get into it. Uh, it's a very interesting argument, but essentially stems from the fact that Governor DeSantis decided on May 24th, 2019, the day after the AOB legislation went into effect, that something else needed to be done. The recipe was not finished and an additional ingredient was needed. And specifically, it was the fact that there were certain bad actors that were publicly uh, voicing their strategies to bombard and bum rush the insurance companies with lawsuits before the July 1st deadline. And uh, because of that, Governor DeSantis signed into law House Bill 337 in the afternoon of May 24th. And essentially what that said was is that the attorney's fees uh, for these AOB vendors are no longer to be construed under 627-428, but that they're going to be uh, construed under the new statute, which is 7152. And that went into effect that day. So sure. what I hear you saying is that Various venues around the state. We have 20 circuits. Uh, you know, we're seeing where the judges recognize the governor signing House Bill 337, which had a provision that talked about attorney's fees. And the insurance companies are using the, I would say, the intent, though we never like to interpret the intent of a governor or legislature, but that that, that particular law that went into effect did signal to judges that the governor had an intention to not allow attorney's fees in these specific cases. Is that what the seems to be the pervasive opinion of some of these judgments that are coming out? 
Absolutely. And okay. and I think that when Governor DeSantis signed into law House Bill 337, which was actually 9.41 a.m. on May 24th, 2009, it was done in sort of an urgent, rushed manner, um, not to say it wasn't fully thought out, in response to the threats that were being received vocally by some of the plaintiff's attorneys as to what they were going to do. The intention appears to be very clear um, that it was intended to essentially prevent the uh, attorney's fees from going under 627-428. Got it, got uh, it. And I'm, I'm going to stop I'm gonna stop you there, and I'm going to get Mohammed to jump in here because Mohammed, as you know, Tanaz, and we are embracing all of those that are listening, all stakeholders that are listening to this podcast. Mohammed represents policyholders, a former insurance defense counsel, former regulator, so he's got all perspectives to bring. Mohammed, I'd like to hear your reaction to what the courts are doing, what you're hearing Tanas saying, that the courts are recognizing what the governor did and his perceived intent. What are your thoughts about what's been going on the past seven months? Well, I think there's a, a lot of misinformation just in general in the industry about what the ALD reform did, how it was done, and what the expectations are going forward. What's clear is that it is difficult for a lot of these uh, vendors to adhere to the requirements of, this, of the statute. And it's difficult for them to adhere to it and comply with it because they're, they're confused as well. So I know Tanaz um, gets questions from, from contractors and probably plaintiff attorneys reach out to her to try to figure out how to maneuver and, and maybe even circumvent some of, these, some of these requirements. But I think in general, there's just a lack of understanding of the, of the, of the issues. And one of two things is happening. Some of the uh, AOB vendors are not going the AOB vendor route anymore um, under an assignment. Uh, they're trying to take other uh, approaches to sort of protect their interests for the services that are rendered on behalf of the homeowner. Um, and I also think there's insurance companies, the front end desk adjuster may be a little overzealous in trying to apply the statute when it doesn't necessarily apply or doesn't necessarily understand the nuances of the requirements to hold the vendor accountable. Um, and that's part of the issue that I think we're seeing is uh, of misinformation on both sides, but what's clear is that it's it's working. I mean, that that's that's very clear is that the number of lawsuits have gone down, and um, it's trending in the right direction. Uh, I think there are some some issues um, that we can delve in here that deal with some loopholes, and there's some issues that deal with some um, maybe some unintended consequences. What I'm seeing is a lot of vendors who don't want to use assignments anymore, but are having difficulty getting paid, and the expectation has always been, well, if I can't go against the insurance company directly what recourse am I left with as a, as a, as a contractor? And that's, I think, part of the question that we wanted to discuss today is what, what recourse is there to get these um, disputes settled if you're not going to go the full assignment route? So uh, That's part of the problem that, has, that, has, that, that exists now in the marketplace. So let me give you another perspective then, Mohammed. You wrote an article that helped contractors work through this new environment of no AOB and gave them advice and I've even heard contractors say, I won't work for insurance companies and I'm not going to the panhandle where they're desperately needed because I'm not going to work in this crazy environment. No AOB, I'm not going to get guaranteed I'm going to get paid. And it begs the question of trust. Contractors that I talk to, some say they work for insurance companies, they get paid, no problems. Others say, I never know if I'm going to get paid and I'm curious, Mohammed, when you wrote your article, can you give us a summary of what you said to contractors about how they can get paid? Because we need contractors to do this work. Yeah, and I've done a little bit of what Tanaz 
has done as well, which is advise contractors how to make their contract compliant if they want to adhere to the new ALB um, standard. But I, I think the short answer is what we're seeing is, is that the, the vendors want to do the work, but they want to build in something in their contract that allows them to, you know, some, some guarantee of payment. And what's happening is, is if, if the work was actually, you know, if the work was actually done for that amount that the, that the supplement is for, and you can't go the, the assignment route, how do you resolve that dispute? Well, the contract from the, the vendor and the homeowner, not the insurance policy, but the actual contract for the work that's being performed can have in it, whatever the parties agree to, you know, put into the contract, which is perhaps uh, a, a penalty for late payment or, uh, perhaps it's a guarantee that you're going to pay if the insurance company doesn't pay. This is all kinds of provisions that you could put in there. What what essentially is happening, what I'm seeing in the panhandle is there's a lot of vendors who don't want to go up there, like you said. Panama City in particular, interesting for anybody who's kind of worked in the industry, the assignment issue was all over the state, but it was probably least pervasive in the panhandle. So you didn't really have a, a, a huge existence of AOB contractors in that area who were ready to go once Michael hit. But you did have a lot of contractors who weren't as sophisticated when it came to knowing how to maneuver through the uh, insurance claim process. And essentially what, what happened is, is a lot of the vendors started using assignment of benefits as a direction to pay, not as a full-on assignment. And so you see a lot of assignment of benefits now that are maybe labeled an assignment, but it's really just a direction to pay. And the more sophisticated vendors are now just removing the assignment language altogether from their contract. And they're just leaving in there the provision that is a direction to pay. But I think what carriers are saying is, it's not just the direction to pay, they're seeing a direction to pay, and then sometimes they're seeing a power of attorney. And if they get both of them together, the issue is, at least from my perspective, how is that not an assignment? That sounds like an assignment. I mean, constructively, you've got the ability to sue under the power of attorney, and you've got the ability to have your name included as a payee under the direction to pay. That pretty much does what the assignment of benefit did prior to legislative reform. So not, that's an issue. I got it. And what what what, what do ahead. carriers do in that situation? How do they identify it? And do they hold the vendor accountable for having constructively presented an assignment, even though it's not labeled as one? Tanaz, I want you to talk about that direction to pay. Give us your thoughts about that. Yeah. So so just to be clear, I, I don't work with miti- water mitigation companies or mold mitigation companies or anything of that sort. Uh, the work that I've done is for a legit, good-hearted, honest. Uh, contractor who actually does rebuild work. I mean, this is his work. He typically doesn't deal with insurance claims, but every once in a while, he has a client that has an insurance policy that's willing to cover it. So he works alongside with the carriers and he has never, ever used an assignment of benefits uh, before. And what he was running into time and time again um, is that the uh, estimates he prepared were good, honest estimates and these surplus line carriers and these commercial line carriers, you know, big established insurance companies would say, you know what, your estimate's fair. We love it. We're, we're fine with it. We'd love to pay you. But then they would issue the check directly to the uh, insured. And so, Occasionally, he would run into these bad actors on his end, where his clients that he cared for so deeply, who he was working with, would essentially not pay him the money that they were able to get based on his contract and his estimate uh, that he submitted to the carrier. And he did it the old-fashioned way. He did it based on trust, and he did it based on just a handshake and a conversation. And what happened to him was what started the AOB process in the first place. So you see this evolution 
starting in the panhandle because that's where he works. They don't know about the AOBs and they're not accustomed to them. So he reached out to me and said, what do I do in these scenarios where I'm doing good, honest, hard work, I'm getting the money for this insured, my client, they're getting money from the insurance company that's supposed to go towards my repair services that I've already completed, what do I do about this? And I think he had a valid point. So what are his options? And I think the good old fashioned uh, working with the insurance companies, that right there is still a tool that can be utilized because the carriers, they were willing to work with him and they actually said, you know, they had a great relationship with this contractor, but it was the insureds that were not turning over the checks. So he needed protection. There were instances as well where the carriers were not putting his his company's name on the check. And so he would spend three or four months trying to get money. So what I advised him is when you put in a direction to pay into your agreement with your client, what does that mean? And let me tell you what a direction to pay means. That's not the holographic hologram situation where you're standing in the shoes of that insured looking at the policy as if you own it. You can't challenge a denial. You can't challenge an underpayment. What it is, is it's it's sort of an informal agreement and a, and, a, and a safety net for the carrier to say, okay, you know, our insurance says it's a go. Put this company on check. So we've talked about a contractor that you represent, Tanaz, honest day's work, honest day's pay. Mohammed represents homeowners who want that service. But what about some of the things that we're hearing with some contractors who are figuring out these workarounds, and I'll call them that, where attorneys are making bulk deals with contractors so the contractor would recommend that the, that the homeowner hire this particular lawyer? Or, you know, I've seen the, the literature in the marketplace where one particular restoration contractor says, here's how you can work around the limitation of the $3,000 for the emergency work. So, Mohammed, I want to ask you this. As a former regulator, a lawyer in the Office of Insurance Regulation, do you believe that the Department of Financial Services, Office of Insurance Regulation, Department of Business and Professional Regulation, the Florida Bar, all these agencies regulate various stakeholders in an insurance claim transaction? What should they be doing, Mohammed? What are they not doing? Yeah, it's a great question because I think about that all the time. Having worked at the OIR a very long time ago, the perspective of what the OIR can do in the marketplace, what the DFS can do in the marketplace, uh, all the entities that you mentioned, they all have um, a role to play in that, that symbiotic relationship and how the marketplace uh, you know, plays out. And, and that's part of what they're supposed to do. And there's no denying that the AOB issue and the uh, the boom of legislation, uh, I'm sorry, of litigation, even when there were no hurricanes. I mean, typically we see a lot of leg- a lot litigation in Florida when there's a lot of hurricanes. Uh, but in that area where we didn't have a lot of hurricanes, there's no denying that the increase was directly related to the assignment of benefits issue. I would have liked to see the regulators be more involved or, or, or perhaps more zealously advocate on the issues or give some guidance or perhaps even reach out to some of the entities that were involved in this to let them know that you know they're 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 taking note and paying attention and, and what does that mean as far as what they could have done and what impact they could have had you know maybe it could have been a declaratory statement maybe it could have been getting more involved uh, to push the legislation earlier it seems like everybody was hurting for way too long before the legislator took action and and that always seems to be the case because by the time it gets to the legislator it's been several years of 
proliferation of the issue like it was with the sinkhole issue prior. Um, so the, the, the legislative fix is always a possibility, but it's never a way to deal with the problems in the law as they currently exist. And that's where the, I think the regulator could have had more involvement, or at least I would have liked to see more involvement, more guidance. There's a lot of entities out there that are involved in this unscrupulous behavior uh, that get referred to the Division of Insurance Fraud, um, or that you know attorneys who are involved who get referrals to um, the Florida Bar. Sometimes it's just a matter of making sure that we follow up on some of those referrals um, and then that the, the publicity is given to that to those bad actors so that we can sort of uh, hold everybody accountable because I've seen it on both sides. I think both sides have actors that make that entire side of the equation look bad. And I think that's part of the frustration is as much as I want to say that uh, uh, the ALB issue is, is remedied, I, I fully recognize that it, there's going to be another issue because the bad actors are going to find a way to, to exploit, you know, the next wrinkle. And I guess the question is, is what's the next wrinkle? Is Does it exist in the ALB context? I think the ALB legislation fixed the predominant majority of the issues, but there's some issues that have arisen as a result of it or maybe unintended consequences, which is why, you know, you had asked the question earlier about what can a contractor do when they have a contract with the homeowner? Um, can, they, can they be involved in negotiating the claim? Well, if you go back to that context of having an assignment on file, uh, not, I'm sorry, not an assignment, but a, but a power of attorney on file in conjunction with a direction to pay. And you pick up the phone and you call the insurance company and you start negotiating the, the supplemental invoice. Are you acting as an adjuster? Are you advocating on behalf of the insured? I mean, is that an appropriate role for you to fill? The answer is probably a little bit more nuanced and the DFS has to kind of give us some guidance there. And, you know, they did. When you reach out to them, they will give you that guidance. But did we have that guidance five years ago? Did we have that guidance when it would have been a, a little bit more helpful. I, I think I, we could have had it a little bit more sooner that could have helped address these issues, but we probably always need the legislative fix. I think perhaps the uh, the regulator sometimes looks to the legislator, the legislator sometimes looks to the judiciary, the judiciary looks to the regulator, and they all kind of wait for someone to do something. And we know the Supreme Court was going to hear the Ark Royal case that had to do with an assignment of benefit, and then they didn't once the legislative reform went through. Um, but, you know, that was some seven to nine years later. Uh, so we had to deal with the issue for a long time until then. Well done. What a way to bring this in for a landing. Tanaz, anything to close out? Because I'd like to leave some parting thoughts with our listeners. Go right ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in terms of what the AOB legislation did uh, for the community, for first party property, um, and I think for homeowners, essentially, is that uh, – Culturally speaking, it's trying to bring things back to the way that it was before, where contractors and vendors would speak to the carriers directly and the homeowners would be responsible for their mitigation costs to the extent that they could. Um, and essentially, it's between now the contractor and the homeowner to work out their arrangement between themselves. The AOB legislation also did something very helpful in that the reporting of claims are coming in quicker, or they should, according to the statute. It put responsibilities on the insurance companies to then respond timely, go out there, inspect within the seven days. Um, so then it, it put sort of uh, burdens on both sides and obligations on both sides so that there could be some sort of mutual agreement that because of these additional obstacles that each side faces, uh, it's a little bit more difficult to file a lawsuit and it's a little bit more difficult to become litigious. So in that vein, 
the hope is is that eventually down the line what we're going to be seeing is the eradication of the bad actors we know the mitigation is necessary we know that people have water damage and i think that the carriers want to protect their insurance to make sure that they have that option but then why not get rid of the bad actors who are just doing this to file the lawsuit later and it really has nothing to do with the mitigation considering the fact that we went through the training everybody at our firm and went through the training for the ircrc we know what is part of the process of mitigating uh water damage and time and time again we would see these invoices and estimates and i would know they did not need to do this they did not need to have an air blower in there when they saw the mold and they didn't need to charge $10,000 per day in supervisory charges and the mortgage charges and all those fees. Well, unfortunately now, and I have to say this, it's shifting over into the roofing context because remember what you mentioned earlier about the $3,000 cap, that applies to emergency mitigation services. That leaves a huge void uh, for the roofing contractors that are now charging maybe 10 to 20 times what it actually costs to repair the roof and submitting permits for the repairs to the county or the uh, civil area where, where they're submitting these permits for a fraction of what they're charging the insurance companies. And so uh, as long as we use the other tools of the AOB legislation for those AOB vendors, which may or may not be using that as their tool, uh, we can curb that as well and try to get them to become a bit more honest and work directly with the carriers. And that always benefits the insureds and the homeowners. For example, in one of the cases that I'm dealing with, not one, I'd say about 10 to 15, uh, the insureds have a uh, coverage limit that is going to be entirely exhausted. And if it's a mobile home, they're going to get their mobile home uh, repossessed and, and salvaged because the uh, roofer is trying to get $300,000 for an $80,000 mobile home but they submit a permit for $7,000. And that subjects this insured to, I mean, a litany of prejudice. And um, and that's a whole other bag of beans. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of things to deal with on this front, but I do think the AOB legislation is working. The alternative AOB, as we discussed, um, or at least something that can help both sides, is direct communication, Tanaz, that was a great way to bring this in for a landing. Mohammed, your perspective was great. And I think the point of this podcast, I want to remind our listeners, is that I want, I, my team, all of us here are interested in bringing insurance claims adjusters and defense and plaintiff attorneys and contractors and public adjusters and regulators, you know, all working together and all of us have to show personal leadership and openly communicate and talk about this. And I say this to my friends in the regulatory role, you don't have anything holding you back from picking up the phone. If you're interested in why a stakeholder is doing something, even if you don't regulate them, you can call them and ask them. It works and it engages in conversation. And remember what the governor said when he summed up his State of the State speech. He said, quote, the legal system is supposed to be used for redressing concrete injuries and disputes. It's not a game and shouldn't be used as such. Reforms such as AOB that improve the legal climate here in Florida are most welcome. The governor has said some of the insanity in litigation is hampering his ability to do his economic development activities. 
I'm curious what you think, all of you that are listening to this podcast. I would love very much for your feedback, as always. We have a whole show notes section of our podcast, and we'll post all kinds of things, articles, information for you to read, for those of you that follow this stuff so closely. And we want you to like this podcast. I want you to call me. You can call me very simply by dialing 850-388-8002. That's 850-388-8002. And leave me a message or send me an email, Lisa Miller, all one word at lisamillerassociates.com. I appreciate each of you listening to this. I want to hear what you have to say. Tanaz Muhammad, thank you. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much, Lisa. All right. And to all of you listening, remember here at Lisa Miller & Associates, we're all about client success and a passion for policy. Until next time, be safe. This has been Lisa Miller & Associates, Florida Insurance Roundup, your podcast on the people, issues, and regulations shaping Florida's insurance market. For more information on today's program, please visit us on the web at www.lisamillerassociates.com.